Hey guys, welcome back to the Judson Podcast. We are a group of friends who get together to talk about faith, culture, and all the things that interest us. For today's episode, Jenny will not be joining us. She's taking the week off, spending some much-needed rest with some friends. But we do have a special guest today, and that is Kim Hewson. Kim is a public school educator in Rhode Island. And today we're going to get into a deep discussion about education, race, and spirituality, and how that all fits together. But first, let's go over our question of the week. And because we are talking about education, we thought a good question would be, what school subject were you really bad at? David, maybe you could start us off. Growing up, it was probably English. I was never interested in any of the books. I did somehow, I guess, because God actually liked reading the Bible around that time. I was, became a Christian early, uh, pre-teenager age. But outside of that, I just didn't like any of the books at school. Like we had to read Jane Eyre. Well, actually, there's one book that I do remember called The Sound and the Fury, where the different chapters are from different people's perspectives. So I like that. Yeah, what's the guy's name? William Faulkner. Your high school never exposed you to black authors? So I think we did read one, like, Things Fall Apart. But even then, it was just like fiction, and I was just like, yeah, I don't really care. <laughs> so that was in high school. Right. <laughs> I still don't really read fiction. I have a greater appreciation for fiction, I would say, now. You discounted like 95% of art just now by saying that you don't like fiction. <laughs> wow, fiction. Wait, no, no, reading fiction, not watching it. Okay. All right. What about you? Let's see. For me... You know, I was like a hotshot in school for the most part, you know, straight A's, <laughs> stereotypical, top-of-the-class Asian. But then, but then when I was a senior in high school, like, senioritis hit me so hard. Like, you know, it was the first time in my life where I slacked off, you know, expanded my interests beyond just classwork. So the class that really suffered the most was calculus. Mm. I, w- I was never good at calculus because I never put in the effort. I'm sure if I, like tried to learn it again, I could pick it up easily. But I don't remember anything about it because that, that was my first and greatest blow-off class. That mm. was my favorite class. That's, math is always my favorite wow. class. <laughs> classes, actually. Wow, he doesn't like fiction, but he likes that, that weird world of calculus. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's really strange. <laughs> it's almost the same so thing. So I'm like, <laughs> uh, no, but there's, there's something about those vectors, I'm sure, in calculus <laughs> that are like a poetic thing. But I'm like, Scott, too, calculus was something that I just couldn't get my teeth into. But I would have to say it had to be science because I was pretty good at math. You know, let X equal X. Freshman year in high school, I remember the science class. I just just didn't get my imagination. I mean, I liked uh, I liked English. Math was kind of something I was always good at. But then science, physical science just seemed kind of boring. It was like didn't awaken anything in me. Until we got to biology, and that was kind of cool. But again, it was just like I wasn't that interested. And then by the time I got to chemistry, it was like, okay, the invisible world, I didn't have the, the attention or the imagination for it. And the teacher was new at it. I couldn't get into it. And then by the time physics came senior year, I was a mess. So I was like, uh, uh, unfortunately, like copying answers. You know, I, it's the only way I got through. Thanks for sharing, Kim. So, like I mentioned before, we're talking about education because, you know, it is one of the great underrated sources of where our worldviews come from. And especially as it pertains to race 
and civil discourse and multiculturalism and diversity. For instance, when I was in college, I had a really good friend who grew up in South Carolina, and somehow we randomly got onto the discussion of the Civil War. And my friend mentioned great believer and someone I respect, and he said, "Oh, oh, you know that、uh, the Civil War wasn't about slavery." And I was like, "What? Excuse me?" <laughs> and he was like, "No, no, Civil War was fought over states' rights." As he was talking, I realized this was what he had been taught all his life throughout the South Carolina school system. Wow! Right, that it was just about states' rights and not slavery.、Mm. Um, and he was absolutely convinced of this. Wow! And you know that was one of the first moments that I realized, like we're not all learning the same thing. The lost cause. Yeah.、Um, the lost cause. <laughs> But you didn't say it right, Scott. You're supposed、mm-hmm. to say states' rats. States、yeah. rats. It's supposed to no rats. It was about some rats. This guy didn't understand. <laughs> one of them didn't understand, and they said it's rat. Bad, bad history teacher joke. I can tell you a couple more. So how education is taught is incredibly important,、um, especially in a time where you know politics is really radically reshaping the way that teachers go about their work. You know, I highly recommend a recent episode of Last Week Tonight, where John Oliver discusses、oh、all the gaps in our American history. Yeah. So we thought this would be a great episode to bring in Kim Hewson, a great friend of mine. And a great brother in Christ.、Uh, I'll let Kim tell a story, but before I do, I should mention that Kim has the honor of being the first your Gen X. I'm at the end of the baby boomer, beginning、yeah. Gen X. I can kind of identify with both. Okay. Well, you are our first non-millennial guest on the pod. <laughs> so big achievement. Speak up! I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Kim,、um, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Especially、uh, your career in education. Thank you so much for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to spend time with you and uh, uh, David as well. Good to see you across the、uh, the miles. You know, I want to acknowledge the teachers that I've had in my life、uh, who've influenced me. You know, my mom, she lives to serve as a homemaker still, and、uh, that's a teacher of sorts at, at home. And I want to acknowledge also many people in my life who have inspired me. Uh, and encouraged me to follow the master teacher Jesus,、uh, sowing seeds of love, and that includes、uh, you two here, Scott.、Uh, you've challenged me in my behavior regarding race, encouraged me in my faith, and in my profession. So I'm glad to be here. You know, I'm a teacher, but I'm also a learner, and Scott's helped me. And,、uh, I'm a white man.、Uh, I have European American ancestors, fourth generation. Here in the United States,、uh, my great great grandfather came in Boston area. You know, I could bore you with my whole story, but、uh, Scotland, Germany, England, and Ireland. As I said, I was raised as a Catholic in Tucson, Arizona.、Uh, I never suffered from want, so I can say I'm a, also privileged in that respect.、Um, my family would occasional occasionally vacation down in Mexico. It was the closest beach, you know, 60 minutes to the border, and then a Uh, about three and a half hours, and so we'd go down there, and that's where I learned so much firsthand about poverty. And I was like, "What is this?" And it helped me to learn Spanish. I was interested in learning Spanish, and I did that. And I got a social studies background in American studies. It was called plus English was one of the minors in that program. I got a teaching certificate at a post baccalaureate program back in Arizona. I couldn't find a job as a social studies teacher. So I returned to school and got a master's degree、uh, with a scholarship because I could speak Spanish 
and then I could teach kids mathematics and the College of Language, Reading, and Culture in the education school in Arizona. So my focus was in bilingual education. Then after that, I taught at a primarily Mexican-American high school in the south side of Tucson for nine years as an Anglo teacher, as I said, mostly of uh, Mexican-American and Mexican recent immigrants. There were natives, Native Americans there and African-Americans and about like 2% white. I learned much there. 2%? About 2% white. Wow. Yeah. In Tucson? In Tucson, yeah, on the south side. Very segregated. Uh, I moved to Rhode Island to be closer to my family, and I got a job teaching recent immigrants, teaching them English, as I had been doing, you know, in a bilingual setting down in Tucson. And then that position got canceled, and about that time I became a Christian, started following Jesus. Right after that, I, I moved over and started using my social studies background. And then I moved to a high school from the, uh, the junior high school, uh, regained some sanity after leaving the junior high. Uh, God bless all the junior high teachers. I did it last year in Arizona for a year, and I'm, uh, I always wonder whose idea was that. But enough about me. It's been 15 years since I've been teaching in the social studies department at Shea High School in Pawtucket. Rhode Island, and I, so I have 14 years on board there. We know that in Rhode Island, as in many states, schools have not, have not opened up according to schedule uh, because of COVID and because of concerns about that. What's going on in your school? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, the governor made a decision to delay the start of school, and it was giving the, the schools more time to get their plans together. They submitted plans to the governor, yet the governor did not you know, she gave a, a very late uh, response what she would approve. So um, Pawtucket schools, as well as uh, about eight other school departments across the state said, well, here's where we stand based on the metrics that you are going to choose. And we are going to follow with this, uh, with this type of teaching. Well, the distance learning, she's not expecting that. By October 15th, the governor is expecting it to be everybody's going to be in the building. So there's going to be a transition period. She's predicting that uh, by October 15th, students will be back in school at some, in some way, shape, or form. That could be a hybrid, which means a couple of days in school, a couple mm-hmm. of days out, or fully back in school. Now, I know, like having spoken to parents, that they're pretty upset about the way that the reopening has been handled. And it seems to be a little bit of a political game where Everyone's blaming everyone else, right? The teachers' unions, the governor's office, the administrators. I don't want to say who's to blame, but it seems like a mess, right? Well, there's so many moving parts, and there's so many concerns and so many fears surrounding this uh, invisible killer. The most vulnerable are the kids, and we want to keep them safe. So I think that is driving a lot of the concerns. But there's also teachers, you know, the, the so-called Gen X baby boomer. You know, I'm at an age where it's like, okay, I'm at, potentially at risk because I'm older, but keeping certain, certain elements of social distancing in place in person seem uh, viable for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really want to see my students. But uh, yeah, you're right. There are different aspects going on. Um, but I have sympathy for administrators. I have sympathy for the parents. I understand that it's kind of a a nightmare to really deal with all of these different concerns. You know, I'm a step parent. Uh, My wife's uh, son is uh, 
seven years old. So we've chosen to opt for the distance learning model that uh, we can select in the district where we are. And so he'll be learning from home, which we think is a pretty good choice, especially given the fact that Catherine works at, from home and she can be there to help supervise him. Mm. But it's still going to be a lot of work. You know, and if parents are working out of the home, that's a that's a difficult thing. Parents want to go back to normal. Scott, in answer to your question, it's it's not easy. I don't really know what's driving it. I know that so many teachers want to be with their students. They want to be there. So we're obviously living through a very significant time in American history where you know we've seen the greatest protests since the civil rights era, the greatest surge of activism that we've seen in our lifetimes. How would you say that public school teachers and just the education system in general has been trying to communicate what's going on to their students? The trajectory of this cultural moment um, occurred at a time when many students were not in school. That's kind of a gimme. Oh, we don't have to do any teaching. I was traveling across the country uh, when uh, George Floyd was uh, murdered. I had some students reach out to me and we communicated. The high school that uh, where I teach, I know that uh, there, it took them a while, but it was right when graduation was happening and they put out a, um, you know, kind of a, a message that like, we hear you, we love you, we support you. You know, it was trying to, to be positive in this, in this difficult, difficult time. Um, but I think that uh, my presence in meetings with different educators across the nation, um, connected to a couple of different groups, that there has been a hopefulness that this is a time where there's an opportunity to speak to some of the issues uh, that, that are, are salient, that are important. Some educators are, are in book clubs. For example, at the school where I teach, there was a club that was completely voluntary to read a book that was appropriate for our students because it's a school where there's 90% uh, white teachers and 90% students of color. And so we read a book and it's called For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and the Rest of Y'all. And so we read that together uh, to gain some insight into potential ways to address anti-racist education or to implement strategies that are truly multicultural. So I was encouraged because I read that book and mm. I, I got a lot out of it. Specific schools are doing professional development where they're addressing cultural competence. But in terms of uh, specifics uh, for my school department, I've yet to, to hear anything of any mm. substance besides that club. So unfortunately, this hasn't been the moment uh, for, our, for our school department. And let's take a step back. And okay. for those listeners who don't know much about Rhode Island, yeah, they're probably, Sorry. you know, have the depiction of like Newport mansions, <laughs> romantic seascapes. And family guy. A typical suburban lifestyle. Or uh, calamari. On the other hand, for anyone who spent any length of time in Providence, and by extension, the Cranston and Pawtucket area, uh, Central Falls, you know, it is a very minority dominated urban area. Providence is a minority-majority city. It is mainly Latino. And juxtaposing those two ideas of Rhode Island, 
Uh, what well, we have is a very segregated state. Yeah, and let me interrupt with a great fact that you you hit me with a couple of years ago was that Providence was the third least integrated metropolitan area. And metropolitan area, I believe, means 25 miles the surrounding yeah, I think so. the area. So that would include a lot of the land around Providence, Pawtucket, Central Falls, where there are communities where there are very few people of color. It's interesting that you mentioned that, that juxtaposition, but we have, uh, you know, people are like, well, no, Providence is, uh, Rhode Island's very diverse. Well, the urban centers are, mm -hmm. but the more rural areas, you know, you can be a couple of bridges over a few rivers or bays, and then all of a sudden you're in a, a segregated, a very, very typically white community. Right. Yeah, so knowing that background in your school district, how has been the the education regarding you know, America's legacy of racism, not just as a nation, but even in Rhode Island and Rhode Island's part in the slave trade, for, for instance. For those of you who don't know, Brown University, one of the oldest colleges in the country in Providence, Rhode Island, was founded by slave traders. Newport was a slave trading port. People do spend a bit of time and mention it, okay. but I want to uh, say that I'm uh, offended by your question, that you would make me feel uncomfortable by speaking truth to the realities. No, I'm, I'm being facetious. <laughs> I was awakened to that once I became a history teacher here. Brown University put on this thing that described one of the Browns and their, and their relationship with a failed mission to go and enslave folks and bring them back on their boat. Uh, it was a boat called the Sally. You can look it up. The human cost was much more brutal because there were many, many enslaved Africans who lost their lives because of uh, problems on the boat, sicknesses. So that discomfort that I was kind of joking about here is something that doesn't make people feel, it's not a feel good thing, but I think some educators are talking about it. There are groups that are trying to get that exposed. But specifically, uh, Pawtucket is a, an area that has changed demographics rapidly over the past 30 years. There was a huge white flight movement, and a lot of people of color moved into the areas. I don't think Pawtucket has really kind of awakened to the idea that things are a little different out there. The school staff is, is again, like I said, 90% white is amazing. Oh. Mm -hmm. And I hear things like, oh, we, we don't have applicants that are qualified, et cetera. And I'm like, wow, really? Uh, you know, because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are a lot of folks who want jobs out there. So I, mm -hmm. I would love to, to see the records on that. Getting back to your question of, do we do a good job of teaching things such as the transatlantic slave trade that much of the Rhode Island economy was, was based on is no, we, we don't. It's not really required. You know, you can, you can touch upon it, but it's not required in any state standards. Um, I know that uh, there needs to be some because if you look at an economy like Rhode Island where so many people, their livelihood was based on that. I mean, you had banks, you had insurance salesmen, you had uh, farmers who provided. I heard a story about Quaker farmers, Quakers, were uh, against slavery, yet they sold onions to the um, slave traders so that they could give onions to their uh, cargo, their enslaved persons, so they wouldn't get scurvy. Mm. 
So even the abolitionist um, Quakers were caught up in this, uh, this web of the economy. Um, so yeah, I, I can't say that we're doing a great job of it. Um, the only requirement I think is, you know, that we uh, speak to the abolitionist movement. Who you focus on there, you know, depends on the teacher, I imagine. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we know that uh, African-Americans and enslaved people and formerly enslaved were really the forerunners of that. It was the whites who, you know, helped publicize. But, you know, when a teacher says, hey, I don't have time to teach Reconstruction because I had to do so much other stuff during the curriculum, something's wrong there. Mm -hmm. Because we know that the failure of Reconstruction led to some other atrocities and yeah. other evils that need to be um, shared so that we can ensure people know the true histories, how, how complicit many, many people were, many white people yeah. were. I mean, that's a this. great example of how um, you know, history is not one line of progress where everything gets, continually gets better. But if you actually look at what's been going on in the details, it's more of peaks and valleys where every time we try to fix this country, you know, something awful happens again. Reconstruction was a great time of progress where you finally had black people in politics. The KKK was created and shot all that down. Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? Black families created much wealth for themselves. Because they were segregated and they weren't allowed to own certain businesses. Mm -hmm. And so they, right. they, they were forced to kind of create their own mm -hmm. economic business patterns. Go ahead. And the, and the racist white people didn't like that. Right. Uh, and they came and they literally burned down the entire town in uh, a literal massacre, yeah. 1921. Yeah. yeah, Scott, I, I totally agree that, you know, we think we gain, but then there's steps back. And, and that's why education is so important. Yeah. That we don't repeat those mistakes. Exactly. And so it's so sad that you have people growing up in Tulsa who don't know about Black Wall Street. Yeah. It's so sad that you have Rhode Islanders growing up in Newport and they don't know about that Newport was once the major slave trading port in the transatlantic slave trade. That is unacceptable. Yeah, yeah I agree. Someone I worked with said that she felt that for just like, I guess, improving school quality, she was thinking about getting involved in the boards that set curriculum, the things that get taught, things that don't get taught, and like the minimum requirements and stuff like that. Um, I guess who sets the minimum minimum requirements? And then within that, how much leeway do teachers have? So I guess I'm getting at it's kind of like what can teachers do within the current, I guess, setting that you'll have in Rhode Island? You're, you're asking like, what are the national standards? Uh what are state standards and then local uh, standards. And, and I think that schools have some autonomy. Classrooms have, you know, the, the teacher really can say, okay, here's the standard I'm supposed to teach about. How do I teach it? What I understand is that the common core includes certain standards that we're supposed to follow. Those filter down to certain state standards then the state requires things. But you're asking a question where I need to do more research because generally speaking, we're told what the syllabus is going to be mm -hmm. in my school department. But you said there is some leeway, right? Just like the teacher you mentioned who decided not to teach Reconstruction. Well, the excuse was you're asking me to teach so much before, therefore I can't get to it. There's not enough time. 
And, you know, these are discussions that I think I'm going to push back and say, well, that's just not right. And you've mentioned to me that as you're pursuing an intentional journey of anti-racism, um, you see other educators lagging behind on that. There seems to be not as much enthusiasm as you would have hoped for uh, teachers and administrators to get on board with, you know, yeah. with the need for anti-racism. I've heard a lot of things that are very discouraging. And unfortunately, occasionally, I've been passive about calling them out. And uh, I used to have a belief that I was awakened to things of justice. And I believe that in my classroom, hey, I, I have done some good work. But again, I'm a learner. I'm in process and I still need to work on it. And uh, I was challenged by Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And he talks about uh, being a non-racist as opposed to being an anti-racist. And I realized maybe I'm a non-racist, but that did not mean that I was actively pursuing justice or anti-racist policies. And so if I let a colleague of mine uh, you know, say bad things about Native Americans, and I don't say anything about it, I'm passive. I don't call you out, Scott, if you say something racist, then, uh, by the way, I don't think I've ever heard him say anything racist. Uh, so uh, for those of you out here listening, or, or maybe you have, maybe you, maybe you said something about me, me and my whiteness, but that's all right. Scott I and I are friends. I talk about you to my <laughs> wife all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we'll, we'll have a parking lot to talk about that. But anyway, uh, when I became a history teacher, I had to unlearn a lot. I can thank a lot of people who just awakened me to different perspectives. Also, talking to indigenous people in this area who I was told were, were dead, were, they weren't here anymore. That's why they have a museum with no... I mean, I was taught that the, the native culture around this area had disappeared or been conquered or what have you. So I had to do a mm -hmm. lot of unlearning. If those of you have, read, have not read How to Be an Anti-Racist, it's a great story uh, that the author tells about his journey because he considered himself to be a racist, despite the fact that he's thought he was uh, a woke African-American. And I, I really am humbled by that because I can recognize parts of me that are racist and that need to be adjusted. Getting back to your original question was, are there educators that are not on board? Yeah, because it's hard work, number one. And number two, I think it strikes at you know, the values that we were raised to believe in, like that, you know, the American exceptionalism, uh, the North didn't, was not complicit in racist issues, um, you know, just because we were on the side of right during the, the Civil War. And people don't want to have honest conversations about that. But thank God there are people who are engaging in that. And if this isn't the time for it, then I don't know when is. So, uh, Exactly. If, if now is not the time, yeah, yeah. when is? I'm, I'm glad you're laughing. Happen? Something worse? <laughs> Hopefully not. In the National Museum of Amer African American History and Culture in D.C., I was surprised to see Rhode Island there. And, and not in a good yeah, way. I was like, oh, okay. down, down there, down <laughs> yeah, there in not the basement, in, way. in that rough spot. That mm -hmm. was tough. Oh, man. Yeah, that, so you've seen it? That place is amazing. Yeah, And unfortunately, I spent too much time in the bowels and we didn't get to go upstairs and enjoy upstairs as much. 
That's what always happens. I think that happens the first time. <laughs> yeah. Because the bottom part is so engaging. One aspect of being a history teacher that I would like to be better at, you know, you talk about, uh, talk about these things. Well, I don't want to just be teaching about the atrocities and the victimization. You know, I don't want people to just have this trauma-informed history because there's so much more than that. So I'm wondering, like, that's why I kind of laughed about missing some of the wonderful parts of the African-American Museum, mm-hmm. you know, that was, uh, that was encouraging and inspiring. But I- I'm so glad that that was in the museum, and I'm sorry that I missed that part. I'm going to have to take a trip down there. <laughs> so let's transition to talking about the local church. I first knew Kim through church. Kim is uh, passionate about reaching out to people. Yeah, and you're especially uh, a great resource because, like you said, you're fluent in Spanish. So you've been a major help to you know reaching neighborhoods and caring about multiculturalism in our congregations. So you know you started out in the white church, and now you and your wife you attend a black church. So you've seen um, a lot of different types of of church gathering. Being exposed to both white and black congregations, do you see any hope for better understanding? in this tumultuous time? First of all, I, the question is interesting because I never thought I was in a white church when you and I met. It was like, wow, we, we got a lot of different people from a lot of different cultures. But then I look at the leadership and I go, wow, well, the leadership was all white. So I can understand what you're saying. Right. So but, David pointed out this great um, statistic. Basically, 99% of supposedly, quote, multicultural churches are just people of color attending white churches, mm. you know. So it's multicolored attendance, but it's not multicolored leadership. Most of the multicultural churches that existed were minorities in white spaces, mm. as opposed to white people in minority spaces. Yeah. When uh, I started courting my wife, you know, I had been at this, the church that Scott and I were mentioning. I'd been there for quite a while, and I was like. Oh, you know, Catherine, who is a woman of color, she's part African-American, she's uh, indigenous. In my mind, I wanted her to come to Renaissance because I had grown comfortable at Renaissance. But when it came time to make a decision, we prayerfully felt like we were being led to go to the black church. I see a lot of hopefulness during this moment, but I also see, I, I, I don't know, I mean, I think a lot of us suffer from just a lack of knowledge about various elements of history. And I think that we may not have looked at some of the trauma. We diminish the difficult topics in United States history, North American history. For example, the treatment of the indigenous, you know, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, for example, you know, come over and help us teach the Bible to these guys. Well, that lasted for a little while. Because then there was a full-on war that happened because of a lot of conflict between the uh, local Poconokets, or as some people call them today, Wampanoags, and the colonial settlers, which, you know, really set a tone for some bad things. So I'm talking about deep history there that people aren't even aware of that in the name of Jesus, people were maimed and murdered wholesale using the biblical narrative of we yeah, can that's, ki- that's a really interesting insight I never thought about. You know, we were just talking about you know, people from Newport, they should learn about 
how people in Newport got their wealth and they got their mansions, right? In the same way in ministry, like it should be the responsibility of those teaching Christianity to the next generation to like learn about where Christianity has faltered, especially in the region that you're reaching out to. Like definitely. Like I've learned I know a lot about church history, but that what you're describing, like in no part of any curriculum was I taught about King Philip's um, War. Yeah, King Philip's War, the specific abuses of Christianity here in New England. That's fascinating. Right. The historiography, that is the telling of the stories, have been held by certain people. So when I think about that, I also have explored other stories. My wife, as I mentioned, is native. I've heard stories from elders passed down through generations. And they basically said it wasn't like that. No, there were, there were other stories in, involved, you know, and there was another versions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting back to that uh, idea of the church, you know, not knowing some of these things, but also we don't want to go there because it doesn't feel good. Right. So I think the healing, how do you know you need healing if you're covering up the wound? I think we need some truth-telling, acknowledgement of things so that, you know, my pastor today, Bishop uh, Jeffrey Williams, he has an eight-step plan for racial reconciliation. And of one of them is just acknowledgement. And then there needs to be some repentance. And I could go on through the various steps, but how do you get to that when you're like, well, that wasn't me. I wasn't around for that. But people have to hear it. And say, hey, you know, we benefited from some of these things. We're standing on land that was walked on by Narragansett natives. You know, we can have prayer meetings, but we also need to lament. You know, we don't lament these things. And spaces for lamentation are not really around. And, you know, as a school teacher, one thing that, that I want to be better at is, is talk to the students about how does that make you feel? If you were a part of this population, and again, some people say, well, you're, you're painting them as the victim. And I say, but it's okay to sit in that moment and, and see how that would feel. Uh, I think about the fact that we don't like those spaces. Now, we're talking about the church in general. So I think, I think that the church, my hope is that leaders will step forward and have book club discussions. Now, great. We need another book club discussion? I think so. Because those might lead to, you know, ideas for how can we really be unified and reconcile with people who have been oppressed and have been hurt. It goes back to education too, because you're not recommending to form a book club just to learn something. But especially as a group of leaders, you're learning so you can pass on this knowledge to your congregations. I want to ask you about your experience in the black church. One thing that I learned in this podcast from um, a few episodes we did was, you know, the black church deserves to remain what it is, which is a preservation and celebration of black culture and black history Mm. in the context of the gospel. Mm. Uh, And and we talk about how that shouldn't change um, in the name of multiculturalism. No, it should be for black people. And as you, who's been learning to be a part of that story, how do you as a white person fit into that purpose like knowing it's not for you how does god still teach you in those moments well i want to push back a little bit and say that the good news is for everybody 
And while I agree that the space is mostly for black bodies and black minds and black hearts, African-Americans there want to embrace anyone that comes in. Mm -hmm. uh, how do I fit there? That, that's a great question because I question that. You know, I'm on the security team. I also um, am a member of a, a small group and I've been asked to lead. I am a listener. I'm a learner. I, I need to make space for to listen to people uh, who have been through some stuff. I mean, and I have heard stories that, that are incredible. But I also think that black people don't really need to teach white people about history and about racism. One of the things you said is, that really resonates is, first and foremost, you're a listener. I think anyone who's from the majority culture and is trying to you know, be a healer and be a peacemaker, it's pretty much the first thing you need to do. And it's kind of amazing yeah. to me, like having met all the different people of privilege who don't know how to do that. They don't want to listen. They want to say how things should be. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. Like the pride. Yeah. 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 Anything you want to add to that, David? Yeah, because I think once you're actually in it, as it being in the black church, you see that it's kind of like within a family, you might tell kids, you know, do what you can, beat the odds. But then outside, you also want to change the odds. So I think, yeah, it's interesting, yeah, being in the black church now, you're, I guess, seeing the inside yeah, game, I guess, the outside game, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I was encouraged. I went to a, a, a protest, a demonstration yesterday up in Pawtucket, and uh, there were some pastors, uh, or at least ministers, who were there uh, sharing why they were there, why they felt like this was good to walk and talk, and how this is um, biblical to seek justice. You asked me, Scott, what my hopes were. My hope is not on worldly things, but there are powers and principalities that have really hurt people mm -hmm. and are still hurting people and they are wounded. So, mm -hmm. you know, we need to, you know, focus on the hope that we have and on the, the resilience and the, the power that is in the word. And we need to to listen to those voices who recognize that that there is a better way. Yeah. Listen to me. I'm like uh, pridefully preaching like I got mm -hmm. the answers. I mean, I still have questions. It's not for lack of knowledge. You know, things aren't better. But like people have like barriers. You could call it spiritual blinders. You could call it pride, whatever. That doesn't allow them to, you could say, sit with the difficult history enough to actually accept it and then make changes based on it. So I guess for me, I, I guess my question is, what do you think about Christianity helps you to actually sit with it and do something justice related based on it? You're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount mm -hmm. and it says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. I think about that and I think about blessed are the peacemakers I think that Jesus gave us some good teachings about uh, mourning with those who mourn. And I mean, I think that, that I've spent time reflecting on the cross and what Jesus did. And it's not just for me. What helps me sit with that is the 
the discomfort of knowing that I'm supposed to carry my cross. It's the personal responsibility that comes with working out our salvation daily, but also knowing that Christ went through this so we can share the good news with others, so that we can tell other people and show them what the kingdom of heaven is about. Mm -hmm. Long story short, I think it's that lament of recognizing that in pain, there is a comfort. Does that even make sense? Not in the natural, in the supernatural. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why Black faith is one of the most vibrant versions of Christianity we see today, because they understand the gospel more deeply than almost anyone else mm -hmm. because yes. of the history of pain and oppression. That's who the gospel is meant for. Wow. Blessed are the poor, yeah. And uh, thanks, Kim, for coming out. Scott mentioned the potential of part two, but I know that you, there's some other topics you wanted to get into. So, But um, thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the Judson Podcast. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Judson Podcast. Um, don't follow us in real life because it's COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Bye. No creeping. <laughs>